Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, hi, and welcome. I am your host, Emigrant Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. My guest in this episode of the podcast is Jess Griffiths. Jess is the clinical lead for BEAT, the UK's leading eating disorder charity, and she joins me to talk specifically about binge eating disorder. Now, if you're a regular listener of this podcast or you follow me on Instagram, then you'll know that after reading the book Brain Over Binge a couple of years ago, I came to the rather uncomfortable realisation that I had binge eating disorder. And understanding that for the first time really helped me but it was also incredibly confronting and painful because I realized that it was something that had stopped me from living my life to the full made me feel incredibly awkward in social situations and had just been a mental battle I had been fighting for so long that no one could tell from the outside looking in was actually going on at all And it was really helpful for me because in understanding what binge eating disorder was and how it looked and felt, I was able to unravel it and move forward with a much more balanced relationship with food, with exercise and with my own body. But it was really difficult. It is still really difficult and it was a very difficult road to try and navigate on my own. And so hopefully this conversation with Jess will be helpful for anyone who is going through this and... um, Basically, I don't want any of you to go through it alone. I shared my story in July 2020, roughly a year after I had realised, a little under a year um, after I realised what I'd been struggling with, as I felt that this was an appropriate amount of time to be able to then share the story in a way that I thought would be helpful to you, my most excellent listeners, who may be experiencing something similar or may know and love somebody who may be experiencing something similar. And I know that after I posted that particular IGTV and podcast where I talked about it, I had a lot of messages from people saying, I've played this to my husband, I've played this to my friend, I've played this to my significant other, because I didn't know that this was something that anyone else was experiencing. And the being able to share this has not only helped me realize what I'm dealing with, but it's a way of me helping the people around me know what I'm dealing with. But then a few weeks ago, I was talking to my mate, Dr. Rupi Orgula, and he mentioned BEAT. And like I said at the top of this, they are the UK's leading eating disorder charity. And when I went on their website, I was absolutely struck dumb by their definition of binge eating disorder because they say very specifically, it is a type of mental illness. And in my road to recovery, I had become comfortable with being honest about overeating and other things that you don't really want to describe yourself as, but I hadn't ever said it was a mental illness. And the first time I did that, I actually wavered over hitting the post this button because I just thought, oh God, do I really, am I comfortable admitting this? But I did. 
and it made me wonder if perhaps I had been too quick to think I was recovered and if my perspective and output on this subject needed to be broader in order to create helpful content around it, not just anecdotal experience but actually to educate myself a bit more on what other people's experiences are like because as I've said before on this podcast, our relationships with food, our bodies, our exercise, all of those things are so unique and we see them through a very emotional and unique and personal filter and this is where Jess comes in and I contacted Beat and I said would Jess be available to have a conversation with me about binge eating disorder and I'm really pleased to say that they were very um, accommodating and Jess was available so it's brilliant. Two things I want to flag up before we get into the show firstly I am bringing a huge amount of emotional insight and baggage to this conversation and as much as I try to use my journalistic skills it's I found it impossible, to be honest, to, to not bring my own lived experience to this conversation. I hope you don't mind that. And secondly, we did this call because of the lockdown restrictions via the internet. And the connection is a little bit jippy here and there, but I do hope that you'll persevere. During our conversation, Jess and I discuss what exactly binge eating disorder is and what it might look like and how it might feel. How a preoccupation with food, weight and shape can be an indicator of a bigger issue why it's so backward that the world addresses weight as a physical issue when the goal should be to take a much more holistic approach, why eating disorders tend to be disproportionately or tend to disproportionately affect people who are people pleasers, why it's estimated that 30% of people who present as morbidly obese have binge eating disorder, the success rate of CBE in recovery when it is offered, but why resources are so lean and why CBT is not always offered. Often it's just a diet and an exercise plan. CBT being cognitive behavioral therapy. The lack of resources as discussed and why raising awareness is really vital to help people understand and overcome binge eating disorder. The challenges of living in a world where we are surrounded constantly by the suggestion to eat and consume. The link between eating disorders and depression. And also the body positivity and body acceptance movements and whether in some instances that can they have the potential to endorse someone with a mental health issue and actually make them stay there and so, so much more. The links to Jess and to Beat will be in the show notes and I know that these conversations can be hard to hear sometimes. I am aware that parts of this conversation may be triggering for some listeners and I should flag up there is talk uh, of the link between eating disorders and suicide during my conversation with, Je- with Jess. It is never my intention to create content that will upset, offend or alienate and I'm very much aware of how much I am still learning on this journey as about this and about this subject. So thank you so much for your time. All the links to Jess will be in the show notes, all the links to everything we discuss but here she is, Jess Griffiths on The Emma Gunn Show. Jess Griffiths, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Lovely to be with you today, Emma. Thank you. Now, you are the clinical lead and uh, for BEAT, which is uh, the UK's leading uh, eating disorder charity. And you are a psychotherapist. And I've asked you to join me on the show to really unpick what I think is a hugely complicated issue. And yet something that a lot of people live with, don't realise they're living with it. And therefore, how can we expect somebody to make sense of something like their relationship with food, their relationship with their body image, if they actually have no guidelines about what it is within which they are working? Now, listeners, I know that might sound really complicated, but I'm bringing my own experience to this, which is that I've talked very openly on my podcast about having issues with my body image, having issues with food, and then discovering I had binge eating disorder and then it was going to the BEAT website on the recommendation of Dr. Rupi Audula. And the words binge eating disorder is a, is a form of mental illness that made me stop in my tracks. And that, Jess, is why we get someone like you on, who is a clinical leader and a psychotherapist. You can actually dig into this and really mm. add value to the conversation. So would you mind just explaining a little bit about what you do and... Mm your perspective on this topic please yeah absolutely so you know issues around binge eating disorder are really close to my heart I just feel like it's the most common eating disorder but the less the least known about the least recognized it only became a mental health condition in 2013 you know so recent and I just think there's such a lot of guilt and shame around it you know, people who suffer from it find it so hard to talk about it for fear of responses from people, 
so many people have an opinion don't they on this and that can be so damaging to people who are trying to open and you know open up and talk about it and you know from experience of talking to those who've who've suffered they so often say interactions with health professionals gps you need to lose weight you need to lose weight and what they don't understand is to ask a person with binge eating disorder to lose weight is like the worst thing that you can do initially. Um, what you have to, you know, I think understand is that the definition of an eating disorder is a morbid preoccupation around food, weight, and shape. And that happens whether you're whatever weight you are, you know? And so it's all about the mental state and the thinking around food, weight, and shape. And with binge eating disorder, therefore, if you've got a morbid preoccupation around it, if you ask someone to focus on it more and in effect, maybe starve them, you know, by putting them on a diet, that's going to completely exacerbate their symptoms and make things so much worse. So, you know, in terms of binge eating disorder, you know, this isn't just about being greedy. It's not about, you know, not having willpower. This is a serious mental health issue that, it, you know, and I've heard people say it's like a monster in my head that drives me to binge eat. I, you know, I literally feel like I have no control over it. It's so impulsive and, and it's driven by emotional distress. It's not just emotional overeating, having an extra cake. It is, it's got serious underlying, you know, emotional distress issues that those people really need support with to get out of that cycle of binging. I think it was when I went onto the Beat website and obviously I'm living this too. So I'm learning all the time. And it was, it was going through those resources that made me realize just how important it is to open up the conversation about this, because you said something about being greedy. And I remember, well, I've tried to eat a certain way, a certain way around people for my whole life. So I didn't give it away. I knew that something wasn't right. I knew that I wanted more than I was having. I used to take real pride in not, not eating very much around people. And I remember living with a friend of mine when I was between flats a few years ago, and we were talking about my weight and her husband just said, you're just greedy. And it was, it cut me to the quick because I was so upset that he had seen it. And that's what I thought it was. I thought I just couldn't control myself. I, would go to weddings and if it was a buffet I would have to have my back to it it's just so ridiculous to even say it now I feel really ashamed but if there was food in the room like I never used to keep food in my house because I thought well if the food's here I will eat it so I every time I need to eat I will go out and go and collect it it's like which is it pervades your whole life doesn't it you know and then you know just hearing you say those things you know there's so much well all of our lives is around food we have to choose to eat we can't escape it Mm. it's wherever we go um and so you know it saddens me to hear those experiences you've had but yeah unfortunately it's not unusual for people who, who struggle with this but I think one of the other things, the perspectives that I've heard recently came from Dr. Rongan Chatterjee and when he came on the podcast to talk about his book and even I said to him, you know, this is a bold choice writing a book about weight loss right now. But when you actually read his perspective, he's incredibly compassionate. And what he talks about in his book and what I came to understand a couple of years ago when I read Brain Over Binge and suddenly realized it was about what was going on in my head is that diet and exercise are blunt instruments. And as you very already rightly pointed out, they can actually make the situation worse And I do wonder if when I'd gone to all those personal trainers I'd gone to over the years or every time I'd gone to the doctor over the years and had um, maybe inarticulately talked about my weight, but I was still going to them talking about my distress, about my Mm -hmm. size. If no one ever said, how, how, how do you feel? Like what, what goes on with you when you put a plate of food together? It was just eat less, move more. But Jess, just before we get into what you're going to say, the really awful thing about eat less, move more is that once you've sorted out your head, that is, that, that's the thing that works if weight loss yeah. is indeed your goal. So it's very yeah. confusing and complicated. So confusing, so confusing. And I think, you know, those very things around eat less, um, sorry, yeah, eat less and move more will completely perpetuate all those symptoms. But I think... I don't know, the whole world just seems to address it as a physical issue and rules out any kind of emotional, social aspects of this condition. It's almost like 
okay, it's got to be a physical issue. You should just be able to sort it out. Where is the holistic approach to this? It's, it's just unbelievable. And, you know, for people who are maybe referred to a weight loss program because of maybe obesity, there is no screening out for people with eating disorders at the minute, but we actually know around 30%. And I, I would say that's a conservative estimate. 30% of people who are morbidly obese have been eating disorder. I should imagine it's much higher than that. So, you know, to not have some sort of screening tool to ensure that we're not going to make their issues worse is, is really so important. And health looks different for different people. I do think, you know, health for some people will mean that they need to focus on their mental health more than their physical health for a period of time to get well in that respect. And then later on, maybe look at the physical health, but it's not always the start of starting point, is it? I 100% agree. And so you talk then about 30% of people who are, just remind me of that figure and what the actual definition is. Morbidly obese. Yeah, so 30% of people who are morbidly obese will be suffering from binge eating disorder. And actually binge eating disorder is more prevalent than um, bulimia and anorexia. And I'm, listeners, you can't see me, but I'm you saying bulimia with my right hand and anorexia with my (laughs) left hand, because subconsciously I feel like they're at opposing ends of the scale. I don't know if that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all three eating disorders feel quite different in how they present. But, you know, anorexia is probably the most famous, but it's the it's the least common. Only about eight or nine percent of people who suffer with eating disorders will have a restrictive eating disorder. So. And and that's where a lot of the funding goes. So a lot of the funding will go to, you know, that that end of the spectrum, if that's what we're going to call it today. (laughs) So, you know, in terms of binge eating disorder support, um, the NICE guidance um, recommended by the NHS, you know, treatment is guided self-help. You know, actually people who are offered support, um, which is kind of a form of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, if they're offered that, actually about two thirds of people do really well in terms of recovery from this. So the solution's quite, you know, quite hopeful, but it, it, the resources are not there at, at the minute. So at BEAT, um, you know, I would advise everyone to check out our resources, but we are, we, we have piloted the guided self-help for binge eating disorder. And we're obviously, we're focusing on it for Eating Disorders Awareness Week this year, which is the mm-hmm. first week in March. because we really want to be able to get as many people into treatment as we can. You know, it doesn't, we don't need to have this lack of provision. Because we just keep coming back to the fact that a lot of people are struggling with this. And I would guess that actually binge eating disorder is probably not easy to fall into, but with all of the suggestion that is around us to eat, to consume, then that would just, if you look at it objectively, that would affect the decision-making process in one's brain about what is right and what, right is probably not the right word, but what is appropriate in terms of eating because if we go back some generations we would eat when the sun came up when the sun came down and to fuel what we did in the middle of the day but now we have all of this stimulus all of these stimuli saying double cross this or cheese filled this or what have you and snacks yeah and it's very hard to make sense of but but is that a mental illness does that qualify if you're just subjected to all of these prompts and you indulge them does that equal a mental illness so it's a really good question I think it's really important to remember that underlying eating disorders tends to be a secondary mental health issue so like 75 percent of people who suffer from eating disorders will have depression underlying so it's it's you know I think you can develop binge eating issues or overeating issues just from dieting because you'll restrict and then often end up binging so that's not quite the same that's you know, that's due to dieting, that's due to, you know, depriving oneself, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a, a mental health issue. It, you know, binge eating disorder is driven by really, really difficult and uncomfortable feelings that the person cannot tolerate. And then I guess the binge eating becomes this maladaptive coping mechanism. And it becomes a vicious cycle, really, because when you binge, you feel those guilt and shame feelings. But, but obviously, you know, it kind of works in a sense because people will say with binge eating, they feel that kind of sense of relief when they binge. It the kind of the anxiety dissipates for a few minutes, but then the guilt and shame creeps in about what you've done. And also combined with the fact that you haven't got to the root cause of that distress, it then means you keep going around in this cycle. 
um, which can get it just yeah just so addictive and and you can feel so low so so many people who suffer from eating disorder would feel very low and, and and suicidal actually some of the statistics we've looked into would suggest that I think one in ten will try and take their, their own lives as a result of, of binge eating disorder. Okay gosh that's terrifying okay so let's talk about what binge eating disorder can look like because one of the things that I found confusing and I still find confusing for me and so it might be relevant for someone listening is I was never binging in the way that um it looked like in the movies I watched when I was a kid you know with the girl from um, the Power Rangers on where she was a gymnast and then she would like eat everything and yeah. that that was how I thought an eating disorder, that's what I thought an eating disorder looked like because that was the only depiction I saw. For me, even though I call it binge eating disorder because it does feel like it um, mm. fits the profile, it was that I ate too much when I ate. It wasn't necessarily that they were binges. It was mm. that I just ate too much at every sitting. Yeah. And I suppose, I think that's important to reflect what's going on emotionally. I think quite often people will say who've got binge eating disorder, the emotional void is what they can't bear and it's food that's filling that emotional void. It feels like it's almost representing needs, isn't it? Because food is a basic need Mm. and you're trying to fill that emotional void with food. And that can often, you know, be how it presents, I would say. And obviously getting to the getting to the root cause of what's going on there and that could be a trauma for someone that could be a variety of things that have happened in their lives getting to the root cause of that emotional you know void or whatever that relates to is so important does that make sense yeah is that is that the uh the journey for everyone because I I think I used to linger in this space of there's a reason why I eat this way. It's because I copy how my mum eats. So my poor mum took the brunt of like, oh, you're a snacker. Therefore, I'm a snacker. So that that's why I've got these legs. And I would be really, <laughs> really cross about that. Or I would say, oh, it's because of this or because I was bullied at school or because I changed schools at this age. And actually where I found, where I found it really helpful was when it said in that book, it doesn't matter why. You just have to sort of work from now and being able to sort of unhook that baggage, you know, like a moving steam train and unhook that carriage and just let it fall behind. I could gather pace and I felt like I had more purpose and could just not carry that weight anymore. But I'm guessing in your job, actually, sometimes it's of real value to unpick and dig a little bit deeper. Yeah, really good point. I think it's a combination of things. So I think from what we know about eating disorders, uh, you know, across the board, about 60% of the contributory factors are personality type. And we tend to find that, you know, eating people with eating disorders are lovely people, very caring, can be a bit people pleasing, and therefore maybe lose their sense of self at times. So I think we're working with actually that kind of personality type in therapy, and ensuring that they're getting their needs met that's what I see time and time again with the patients that I'm working with is that they're not good at expressing their needs and getting those needs met and of course then food comes in as a kind of replacer for that mm. and for some people yes there might be a trauma that's experienced in their life you know one of the, the you know one of the really important symptoms I see is sometimes people use binge eating disorder to make themselves unattractive you know if there's been abuse and things like that mm. physically unattractive and a protective factor using their body as a bit of a barrier to other people so there's so many different reasons why and I I guess when I'm you know starting out with a with a person who's suffering we're just piecing it together we're looking at these personality and characteristics we're looking at family history we're looking at you know family social history how was food talked about in in your home how was body image talked about so it's not really like there's ever one really key cause that you can say that's what did it just looking at lots of things and as you say it's so important to make changes in the future I'm not a huge believer in delving deeper into those things in the past I think it's all about the here and now and how we can change those things moving forwards the other thing as well is that we've had in recent years which is a wonderful thing I think it's very positive in many ways but we've had a real destigmatization of mental health issues and it's a conversation that we can have very openly But what comes with that sometimes, and I've talked about this in a completely separate issue actually to do with um, beauty, is that we have started medically catastrophizing normal feelings and emotions. So if I'm feeling a bit sad 
or not not me, but if one is feeling sad, it might be expressed as depressed. If someone's feeling nervous about a job interview, which is a perfectly normal emotion, they may express that as anxiety. And that then creates, I think you have to be very careful with the words you use personally, because yeah. you, you're sending a message to the people around you and also to yourself about how you may or may not be feeling. And so what I don't want to do is say, hey, everyone, if you can't have a great relationship with food, you've got a mental illness, because I don't think that we should just start labeling everybody as having a mental illness. So is that something that you have an opinion on? Yeah, so I think I'm very conscious of that in the lead up to Eating Disorders Awareness Week. I think we're very conscious that we don't you know, because we're talking about binge eating disorder, we, we need to clarify that what is the difference between, you know, overeating, emotional eating, binge eating disorder. So actually we've written some new stuff for our website that we're going to put out in the next few weeks around that just to help people clarify. Because I think sometimes when I, I mean, I do a lot of training, people at the end of me like, oh, I feel like I've got an eating disorder. And, and we all have a relationship with food. You know, we can't avoid it. We have all got a relationship with food in our bodies. But, you know, I, I just think, you know, it's worth checking out. You know, if, if you feel distressed, then, you know, you can still ring our helpline and they'll talk it through with you. I, I'm just of, you know, the great minder that no one should feel distressed. And, you know, it's perception. If you're distressed by your relationship with food, just talk to someone about it. You know, I think we do need to just be a bit more open. But, you know, whether you get help for that or support and, you know, official treatment, let's just have these conversations. You know, let's be open about how we feel about things and the struggle to to weigh through the enormity of information out there, like you said, about food, what we should be eating, what we shouldn't be eating, you know, what we should be eating dairy. You know, I think I think it's very hard to tell, you know, when it, it slips into a, um, a mental health issue. So talking about it's going to be key. I think the thing is, is also normalising, like you said, around normalising emotions, you know, so it is normal to emotionally overeat now and then. So I'm recovered from an eating disorder. I still emotionally, it's normal to do that. Doesn't mean you've got an eating disorder anymore. Mm. And and so it's it's defining like when yeah when has this become an issue that I can't stop? You know, if someone said to me, you know, could you eat an exercise in a healthy way, or could you stop doing this for a week? There's little measures really where you've got to see has it become an addictive coping mechanism driven by emotions rather than you know generally what we would seem quite quite healthy emotions and and linked to dieting for instance not sure if I've answered your question (laughs) you've used the word addictive which is very interesting because I used to articulate it or if I was trying to express it to people I would say I feel like I am addicted to food in the same way as somebody might be addicted to drugs or alcohol and I can tell you that every time I said that whether it was to friends or family or even somebody who I thought was an expert in that field it was met with tumbleweed (laughs) because because I don't know whether it's necessarily understood but I think it's so challenging to be addicted to something that you need for survival yeah yeah oh my goodness I mean I'm always really cautious around this but I have talked to people who've suffered with drug and alcohol issues and addiction and who have also experienced binge eating disorder, they're like, yeah, this is much worse. Because every day, it's like you have to face that choice. And and I think, you know, in terms of treatment, initially, so often people with binge eating disorder are restricting and not eating all the foods they need to, to sustain their bodies. So first and foremost, we have to get regular eating going and get rid of that idea of good and bad foods, because that's just yeah. if deprivation is driving anything, then physical binges will happen so that's the first phase of treatment really regular eating really removing those what I call physical binges Mm. and then moving on more to the emotional triggers so that's the second phase of treatment emotional triggers and then also looking at body image um, and things like that but I suppose I do describe it as a bit of an addiction and you know because I think that's how it feels you know if we look at that cycle it provides short-term relief guilt and shame creeps in afterwards and that feeds the cycle um I don't think necessarily any foods are addictive but it's connected to deprivation I think so often people binge eating disorder are on a diet which means they are deprived which means they binge on the foods quite often that they won't allow themselves but, but also I know people with binge eating disorder who will binge on anything like 
frozen food, dog food, the compulsion would drive you to eat anything. I've said before on this podcast, I was an alchemist. If I suddenly got, all right, I really need to eat. I could have the, I could have garbage in my kitchen, but I could somehow, I would still make something that I could eat. And yet I'd be eating it thinking, this is this is just nonsense. Like mashed up black beans with mustard in. Like, really? Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing about that that is really fundamentally enjoyable. Like, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It could be anything. And so that's when you really realize you're like, this is not about food, even because it presents, but it's not really. It's about that act. It's about, you know, having something to do with your hands. It's meeting a need in some way. And I think that's the thing is I remember a personal trainer saying to me years ago um, that, and I went and I was very open about, I'm very unhappy about being the size that I am. I think it was early, early journalism career. So I was also very much in that space where I was suddenly on photo shoots with incredibly thin TV stars and pop stars and models and whatnot. And a personal trainer said something to me, like you wear the evidence in public of what you eat in private. And that, again, another thing that really cut me to the quick because I felt it was so true. And I did feel that every day there was this subconscious physical language I was using with people that was trying to get them not to see me, which is exhausting. It's so exhausting and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, you can't hide that. I mean, I, I was speaking to someone this week who, and you know, I think COVID's very interesting to bring to the mix of things at the minute because of the drive around daily exercise and, you know, possible, you know, people who are overweight being more susceptible to being seriously ill with it. I spoke mm. to someone this week whose doctor said to them, well, you know, you clearly must be upset because you're very overweight and you've got COVID. And the person was distraught, absolutely distraught, you know, and you just saying, and and that person was suffering with binge eating disorder and you're just like that's so judgmental and there's nowhere to hide like with that you know it's just a it's almost like a complete and utter assault on on your identity and your character just because of that horrible 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 I mean there's so much to unpick I'm sure we'll go back and forth but one of the things that that makes me think of is when you talk about the COVID argument as I've seen a lot online about how that is body shaming and there's also a movement towards um, being ha- happy in a larger body. And I have brilliant listeners, listeners, you know, I think that you are absolutely fantastic. And in the Facebook group, I actually asked this question recently mm-hmm. because I had Gillian Michaels on the podcast and I really liked her when I had, like we're talking now, I found her to be compassionate, warm and open, but she has that there are people out there who think that she fat shames. I personally didn't get that vibe from her at all. And I asked her very directly about it, but um, somebody in my Facebook group, very articulate follower said, asked me to consider my fat listeners when I choose guests. And it made me stop because I thought, gosh, when I think about my listeners and I've been in journalism for a long time, so I'm always very aware of my demographic. I think about age. I think about uh, gender I think about uh, all genders, by the way, mm-hmm. and I think about where they are. <laughs> and that's pr- and uh, when I used to work on magazines, you would consider income. So when I worked on magazines, it was ABC one. And it never occurred to me to think about what their body shape or size was. Mm-hmm. And so I then went into the group and asked again, would, would you just mind elaborating about I identify as fat? because this is something I'm not really aware of. Mm. And I'm guessing this is something that you must come across in your work. But where I come from it, which is obviously through a very emotional lens, and so I may be getting this really wrong and my intention is never to offend, but if somebody, if I had got to a place three years ago where I accepted my body and the way that I was around food, and that was validated by other people, I would have been in a state of accepting and validating an eating disorder and mental illness. Mm. And that worries me. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, if we think about those stats that we talked about, that 30%, you know, it, it, could, it could really actually hamper their mental health 
to maybe stay in that position. I think, you know, my my belief is really, and this is from a recovery, um, from a place of recovery as well, from having binge eating disorder, I've been severely overweight, I've been severely underweight, and now I sit exactly in the middle of those two places because I've recovered. Um, I do think freedom from eating involves saying yes and saying no to food. And so I think for me, recovery could. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wouldn't have happened at that high weight I was because it, it was due to, to overeating and binging. So I think it's so complex because that, you know, we need to look at health, you know, and someone's health needs at a certain phase in their life. For instance, if they're diagnosed with binge eating disorder, the treatment, you know, you shouldn't be losing weight. You should not. It just will exacerbate all those kind of mental health issues, preoccupation around food, weight and shape. Moving on from that, though, I think I think recovery can look like you get to a place where you you can lose weight and be a healthy weight if you're eating in moderation. And, it, you know, for me, it's so often people ask me, you know, what does recovery mean from an eating disorder? What does it look like? And I, that's my definition is to say yes and to say no um, to eat in moderation. No food is bad. Exercise in moderation. I like running, but not to excess, you know, so. I think my concern sometimes is around, you know, the body positivity movement is that, you know, are yeah, are would be are we endorsing that it's okay for some people with a mental health issue to stay there? And I'm not dissing those people or not saying actually for some people that might be the case that for them to be happy and healthy they need to stay there. But how do we differentiate between those different categories of people? Yeah. To ensure they get mentally well. Yeah. yeah. Exactly, because transposing the issue onto a different thing like um, alcohol addiction, you wouldn't say to somebody who was acting around alcohol in that way and perhaps was then therefore unable to sustain normal, healthy relationships or a job or anything, you wouldn't want them to stay there. And you use the word healthy, and I think this comes up so often at the moment which is this healthy at any size don't tell me I'm unhealthy that's between me and my doctor you can't look at me and tell me that I'm at risk of x y or z so where does health come into all of this both physical mm, and yeah. mental yeah so we it's it's a really gray area and I think we know BMI is flawed in terms of being a measure of that so we have to take that into consideration that the health risks will look different for different people. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, using fat percentage. Um, and in my own journey, you know, I, you know, when I had an eating disorder, I lost my periods at BMI of 18. So, you know, I wasn't really, really underweight, but I got, only got my periods back at a BMI of 23. I have to sit on the border of health, you know, 25, just over to be healthy. And I've had nurses say to me, Oh, I was like, don't even go there. Like, <laughs> I know this is healthy for me so in terms of my own journey of acceptance around that you know that took a long time because you were fighting off all different versions of what health people think healthy mean but I think I think yeah you know in terms of mental health versus physical health you've got to straddle them and hold them in tension both are equally important so you know I think you know it's important to recognize when your mental health needs more attention but also when your physical health needs more attention too. Um, And they're connected. They're not separate, are they? No. And I say this as well, by the way, I know that I've been on some sort of a journey, but if I were to walk into my GPs now and get on the scale, they would tell me to lose a stone, but I've never felt better. (laughs) Based on the BMI scale, they would say, Ooh, Emma, you could do with losing about 12 to 14 pounds. And I would say, I could do a press up, get out of my life. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm the same. I, I've been the fittest and healthiest I have 
been in my whole life so I know this is for me what's what what health it looks like so I guess when I'm working with people I it's very much helping them to identify what health means for them Mm -hmm. and and there aren't any blanket rules on on that I just use a very individualized approach for people when I'm journeying with them yeah and so you have on the website uh, and again this is something Rupi said to me so there's actually a really helpful page on the website which is almost like a multi-choice of have I got an eating disorder and I thought really that seems that seems a bold choice but it's actually a really helpful resource because like I said you just learn how to eat food and prepare no one really tells you about you know you know how to create delicious meals because you've got cookbooks galore or you watch cookery shows but in terms of actually feeding yourself well no one really gives you a course on that and no one really checks that relationship you're having with with food I remember being at school and having a pound for lunch and so I bought two Mars bars and I thought well a Mars bar is a snack therefore two Mars bars is a meal I mean yeah that doesn't tell you that I had no idea how to properly nourish myself then I don't know what does yeah and I mean that leads me on I've, I've got three children and, and it's interesting when they come home from school and say sugar mum everything with sugar is bad and I'm like oh okay we're in this house we're all in moderation we don't have bad foods we you know we look at all of it but I think I think it's such a struggle really in terms of the obesity prevention strategy is is quite opposed really to eating disorder prevention because it labels foods as good and bad yeah. and actually you know, my argument would be that 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 really doesn't solve much at all. Um, And weighing and measuring kids doesn't, you know, doesn't really, well, it's certainly we know it's making eating disorders worse and more eating disorders are cropping up as a a result of it. So we need a lot more education around the middle ground with food. Moderation is okay, you know, Um, and there isn't, yes, there isn't a certainty around food, but I don't think our bodies were made wrong. I think actually our bodies are made to intuitively eat. And if that settles, you can trust it. You know, I'm a big fan of set point theory. I don't know if you've heard of that, but that's the theory really that our bodies settle. If you're eating moderation, exercising in moderation, your weight will just settle. And and yeah, I mean, I have heard that and I feel like I've heard people who are for it and I've heard people who are, are against it. And that does seem to be the whole issue that we're dealing with is polarized opinions about how to, how to eat and at what weight, someone should be at which again just adds more noise more noise and more shame you know I think it that's that's the annoying thing about it all and, and the heartbreaking thing about it is that you know it's it's those really negative opinions and but everyone has an opinion everyone has an opinion on food and you know certainly looking at people with with eating disorders who are trying to recover in the midst of that noise actually the voice that is saying everything in moderation is very small that that voice amongst the barrage of other things is very little and therefore it's really hard as a clinician working in that to make your voice heard over all the barrage of things they hear can we unpick guilt and shame a bit because I feel like that's something that I wrote a social media post recently and it was where I said for the first time in writing I wasn't suffering with I was suffering with a mental illness and I was like, goodness, that's quite a bold thing to admit to. But it's absolutely what was going on. But I also talked about the guilt I carried around with me and the shame I carried around with me and how, as I've already said, how I would eat differently around people, how I felt too out of control to actually keep food in my home. So, and again, that can come from a lot of places, but is that something that you see a lot with people who are struggling with binge eating disorder specifically? Yes, 100%. Lots of behaviours around hiding packets of food, you know, going to extraordinary lengths to hide their eating disorder. And, you know, I think generally as well, you know, I know I'm stereotyping here in terms of personality type, but there is kind of low self-esteem and perfectionism in the mix for all eating disorders. So, you know, there's a very much a focus on detail around those things and and a fear of judgment and being criticised. So if you think about perfectionism and low self-esteem and how that might underpin things, they constantly feel like they're failing and they're not good enough. That's what I hear time and time again. I'm not good enough. I'm constantly failing. I'm constantly getting it wrong. 
and and they really dislike themselves and and I do think the journey through to recovery is so around acceptance and seeing self-worth and and you know I, I suppose changing from that really negative thinking space to more acceptance and positive self-compassion I mean that's that's the stuff that I love when someone I'm working with gets to that place it's just beautiful like that's what I strive for because then they just fly oh that makes me quite emotional that they do they just fly free because they get to a place of rest not fighting not warring with themselves getting to a place of peace that has made me tear up as well because it does make me think about all of the time I wasted and I only came to this realization at the age of 41 and I two years down the line I um yeah it's like waking up in the morning and instantly I my brain says you've got to exercise today because if you don't exercise there will be consequences and then that thought begins to unravel and then and then I have got to this place where now, and I feel very lucky that I was able to get to this place, but I, even this morning it happened where I was able to say, no, you don't need to exercise for anything because what you're going to do today is you're going to make good decisions. You're going to have a great podcast. And I do say good decisions because I personally know that I used to exercise to compensate for what Mm -hmm. I was eating, but also I used to exercise because I thought if I exercise, then, well, then I'm fit. And it's, it's a two-man job. You have to approach your exercise and your food responsibly. Yeah. But there is a battle every morning for, for me. And I feel like I'm a little way down the road where I do feel like I'm on the non-linear, non-linear path of recovery. But I'm able to, to figure that out. But a few years ago, that could have been hours of me pottering around my flat in my gym kit, thinking about working out, hating myself for not being motivated enough to work out, having several coffees to try and get myself to work out because I thought the caffeine would help. And then having a bath and thinking, oh, well, I'm relaxing my muscles in a bath. So, and it's just nonsense when I think about it, but that was what would happen. Yeah. And it's, but it's incessant, you know, that feel is, and it all just feels so punishing, mm. you know, it feels so punishing in your mind and, and that's what I see time and time again across the board with eating disorders. These, you know, these people so often feel like they deserve punishment. And they're, you know, it's a war going on of that negative thinking. And they don't deserve, they're just the loveliest people, you know, to me. And, and you just, you're like, I just want you to see it. I just want to see that you're absolutely enough for this world. And, and no one can tell you any different. But, I, you know, that has to become your own narrative, doesn't it? It sounds like you're walking out. And you're learning still, but you it's clinched in your mind, which is amazing. You'll never look back. Um, it's it's harder on some days than others, I'm sure. But I do believe that that is the journey that leads you through. I remember I went on holiday about oh God, 12 years ago and I met a personal trainer. He was lovely. And it was when my particular cycle that I was on was being in the zone for a period of time, losing weight. And then it all going back on because I couldn't sustain the fitness regime and the diet that I was on. And I was in a pretty, I was at a pretty good weight. In fact, I was probably, and I don't think there's any value in talking about weights, but I was uh, definitely for me, I was at my, one of my smallest sizes. And this personal trainer said, we've got to build muscle on you now though. And that's going to be like a two year job. And then I came back from holiday and I was trying to follow the programs. And I remember being on a call with her and just saying, I just don't want to go back. I just don't want to go back. I don't want to put the weight back on and crying my eyes out. And I think because on some level I knew Mm. that I couldn't sustain this and it was, it was going to happen. I don't feel like that now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is so important to remember. And it just kind of triggered a thought in my mind that so often when I first meet someone with an eating disorder, uh, or suspected you know eating disorder I'll get them to do um, draw a pie chart I was like you tell me you divide this pie chart into how much energy or thoughts you spend around food weight and shape your work relationships and it's such an interesting measure because actually if it takes up three quarters of the circle of the pie chart there's a lot of time invested in it isn't there and it does take a lot of your time and energy and we kind of think well, what could you do with the rest of that time you've obviously got like a determination 
But I was just thinking through in light of our previous conversation around that's a good measure as well as just thinking how much time are you investing? How much of your brain space goes to this? Because that's a good sign that it's become much more important than other aspects of your life. Um, and it's when you're making decisions to follow that eating disorder over maybe socialising, that's also, you know, when it's become problem. I again sorry I feel like I'm just making this into a personal session I'm, I'm trying to bring up examples that other people might be able to relate to but I remember having an appointment with a celebrity hairdresser on a Saturday and it was really exciting I'm a beauty journalist I was invited to his salon on a Saturday it was so cool and okay. I got I got dressed and thought no you're too fat to go and I texted the PR this is about 12 years ago again however long and just said um oh uh, my flatmate left and has accidentally locked me in I can't get can't get there and I am known or used to be known back in the day for not turning up to things and you can bet I didn't go because I didn't like how I looked and so that prevented me from having a good time if I did go but also meant that quite a lot I would pike out of going to things so fear Fear is drives a lot of these behaviours, fear of what people think, of how you're perceived. You know, that's what screams to me out, you know, some of those decisions. And it's so horrible, isn't it, to, that your brain's got to a point where you realise, you know, I'm too vulnerable, I'm too scared to go and put myself in that position. And, you know, it's too much. And that, yeah, I think that happens a lot to people suffering with binge eating disorder. And the thing that scares me about it, and when I started to read the resources on the website, because they are listeners, they are wonderful. If this is something that you feel that you're struggling with, or actually if you know and love somebody who some of this is chiming with you and you're thinking, actually, maybe this is what's going on with that person and it has nothing to do with what I'm presuming, because again, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but I'm the, the behaviours present as something potentially completely different. Like then like the way I was presenting, people would have thought she's flaky. They wouldn't have thought she's at home crying and thinking about whether she should have dinner. No, and, and you know, we're talking about quite high achieving people as well. So on the face of it, they can come across as really bubbly and really confident and really successful too. So you wouldn't necessarily spot it. Mm. So these resources that you have on the website, the things that you've created, and obviously we're trying mm. to generate this conversation around this so people can if someone's listening to this and they think oh gosh the way that Emma was describing these things that's where I am now let's get people out of it so what are the first steps that people can take for themselves that you think is the most helpful first step well I think you know from what I've heard of you know we've had a focus group that we've been working alongside to create a lot of the resources on the website for for binge eating disorder and what I've heard first and foremost is having a safe person to talk to and open up to is really important. And I think the general consensus is whilst friends and family are great, I'm sure they can quite often respond in an, you know, an unhelpful manner. They just maybe don't understand. So I would just really encourage you to just ring the helpline. You know, they are so proficient, knowledgeable, caring. And first, yeah, just talk that through with someone on the helpline, you know, the beat helpline, just to get a sense of where you're at with it. And then actually... We, we, we have got some new resources coming out um, for carers, so friends and family. So actually, you know, it's such a hard conversation to have for some people. So let's give some friends and family some support and guidance around actually how they can have a conversation with you about it. So maybe even if you just directed them to that, your friends and family, if you don't feel confident enough to have that conversation, which is totally understandable, I think that would be a good move too. And then think through, you know, who's safe to talk to your friends and family wise, who will really get this and support me in my journey. I think that's such a, such a good point well made, because I think if you, everybody looks through, looks at this subject through an incredibly emotional lens, and listeners and Jess, I mean, I even said to you before we started recording, I really want to create a useful episode, but obviously I'm coming at it from through an emotional lens as much as I'm trying to use all of my journalistic abilities to try and provide something that's balanced. This is something that has personally affected me and I will obviously bring that tone to it. But so, so that means that if I had ever communicated with my family uh, how I had been feeling they would have responded through their lens and my brother and my father, they do, they do not eat that much. And my mother and I have a pretty similar way of eating and she would, and she would probably be like, Oh, that, I see a problem. Just go on a diet because she was 
very much that 80s housewife who had all the books and everything like that. So it is, I think, really important to speak to somebody impartial who knows what they're talking about and who can just listen to what you're saying and say, actually, you sound fine. Or actually, it sounds like you might be struggling with this a bit. Yeah, I think the thing I hear time and time again is someone has opened up about it to a healthcare professional who then has, you know, has given quite a negative response and then it's they've gone away for 10 years. Yeah. And never spoke. And that's what we don't want. You know, I'm sure there's some lovely ones out there. I'm not dissing all of them. It's just, you know, lack of it of knowledge really. But I think to me, it's such a delicate interaction, that first interaction about speaking about it. That's where I would really ensure, you know, would love to see people go to the helpline first. Do you know, I had, um, after I posted that picture on social media, and it was after that conversation with Rupi, actually, that really uh, got me onto the website. I have had quite a few messages from people saying that they've since called the helpline. But I actually had one lady who obviously I won't name her because she hasn't said that I can but she left me a voice note in tears saying, it feels like a breakthrough. It feels like a, it feels like I finally understand what's going on and thank you because I think this might be the beginning of me getting to where I want to be. Oh, that's beautiful. You know, and that's what we want. You know, I just want people, you know, from listening to this podcast to think I am not completely crazy. I'm not greedy. um, And you're worthy of support. You know, reach out. We're, We're cheering you on. Yeah, and that the greedy is obviously all of the words when you think about that you attach to somebody who eats too much or is overweight. They're all really cruel words. Like oh, horrible. I mean, I remember. Words. I can still remember the first time I was called a fat bitch at school, and it stings. Yeah. <laughs> I can still remember that yeah. moment. Crushing, absolutely crushing. So, you know, you need to be met with empathy. So, you know please do reach out to, to beat and you know got lots of different ways of contacting there's a support group just go onto the support services page as well there's lots of different ways you can get in contact with us and it's not just empathy with other people but it's also I would love to just get your perspective for somebody listening to this who obviously might be beginning on their journey and that and outwardly but in terms of inwardly how somebody can start with speaking to themselves is there a particular are there words or types of vocabulary that they should really steer away from? And are there any words or things that you can encourage them to say to themselves to help? Because we all know that affirmations are a big thing and there is proof and what have you that they work. But what are the things that people should start telling themselves that you think could be helpful? Well, I think, you know, it's a real journey of weeding out some of that negative thinking as you go along. But I think most importantly, it's it's not not your fault it's not you didn't choose this you know it it isn't your fault and you deserve care just as much as the next person I always think the route to self-compassion is the way to go so that might feel so hard when you feel so rubbish about yourself but I think know that recovery will be meaning that it will mean it you know that you know someone will journey alongside you to to get you to that place but please yeah start trying to be a bit kind to yourself I would even just start seeing the positive three positive things I do it so often with people that I'm starting to work with they'll set up like an Instagram account and I'll say just post something positive that you've done today one thing just to find the positive somewhere because actually everyone else will see that in you but we need to get you seeing that so I think that's a good good place to start And you've obviously been really open and thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. And the fact that you've obviously been on your own journey and now you're able to help other people. But for you specifically, is there anything that you wish you could have told yourself before you got on the road to the recovery that you think would have been the key moment that would have just got your head pointed towards where you are now? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I started with binge eating disorder and issues with self-harm at the age of 11 um, and then developed anorexia when I was 17. So I actually went throughout my whole teens with binge eating disorder and mental health issues and I didn't speak out. The only time I did was to a school nurse um, who was doing the weighing and measuring thing um, in year seven and showed her self-harm and she thought, you know, she thought it was a cat that scratched me. But she said, I never forget, she said in that, oh, if, you know, you haven't had your growth spurt yet, as long as you kind of don't put on any more weight and you get 
get your growth spurt, you'll be fine. And I needed her to hear me. I needed her to see the distress. It, it was visible. I couldn't, I couldn't find the words. And I think that's so often the case with, with, with eating disorders, binge eating disorder. They haven't got the vocabulary and the words to say, I need help. So I think I would write it down. You know, I would try and communicate it in any way you can communicate your distress because it's you're worthy of that attention and support. That's what I wish I could have done is been able to communicate more clearly. If someone's listening to this and they feel confused around food, confused or distressed around food, is that separate from feeling confused and distressed about your body shape and or size? Yeah, that's a really good question. So body dysmorphia is a separate condition in itself. Obviously it is tied up in eating disorders, but it's classified differently in terms of a mental health issue. So yeah, but it's very much worthy of of treatment as well and, and, and therapy. So, um, and it's complex, it's complex to see where that starts and finishes, but it can be, you know, a form of OCD in itself. I think what's really come out of this conversation is just how um, unspoken this topic really is, how complex it is. But if it's affecting so many people, more people than struggle and are affected by anorexia and more people than are struggling with and are affected by bulimia. And it's this, I I actually find it quite sinister. I find it quite nefarious because I feel like it latches on and it hides in plain sight and you can just dismiss it so easily. You cannot really dismiss bulimia and you cannot dismiss anorexia for very good reasons, but it feels like this binge eating disorder, which is obviously quite broad and can affect people in many different ways. It feels really nasty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, like a- it's a dark, secretive place, isn't it? It's a dark and, and we can keep the door shut to it because of it, a physical reason or a physical manifestation that we you know can put it in its place but we we've got to join the dots we've got to see that obesity prevention eating disorder prevention has to join up and and work together we really do it's the only way forward I think and I also want to mention it's that we've got this thing at the moment there's a, a lot of debate going on about body confidence and body positivity and quite rightly there are people saying if I am overweight, don't come up to me and tell me to lose weight. If you think I'm fat, don't come up to me and tell me that I need to eat less and move more. And what I don't want to do with this conversation is encourage a dialogue where we start looking at people who are presenting as maybe being heavier or overweight or whatever the right descriptor is and actually pointing at them and going, you're not just greedy, you've got a mental health issue because that would just make the problem so much worse. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. We don't want to go anywhere near that. No, we're not. We want, we want to, we want to ensure that people are, you know, happy and healthy and whatever that looks like. And, you know, none of that is going to come from judgment, is it? None of it's going to come from singling people out. I don't know anyone that has found that a positive interaction in their life or, or would result in a positive outcome. Yeah, because you just wouldn't do it to you wouldn't do it to somebody who was addicted to something else or was struggling with another mental health health issue. You'd be a pretty well, you'd you'd be a certain type of person to point at them and say, ha ha, you've got a mental health issue. But it does feel as though um, being being in a larger body is almost like a soft target for people. It's just like, oh, that's an easy one. I can I, I can speak to you on that. I've had it done to me many times. I was on, um, I actually went to go and review a health resort a few years ago. This is quite recently. This is about four years ago for a magazine. And I went because the the whole blurb was we can help bring down uh, cortisol and we can sort out your hormones to to, um, sort out your stress. So I went because at the time I was dealing with anxiety and I spent three days there being fat shamed by the nurse. And I didn't know it was fat shaming at the time, but I know it now. But she was like, you're young, you're still young. You should lose weight. You could be pretty, all of these things. And then instead of giving me a treatment for anxiety, she brought in a woman with an anti-cellulite machine. Oh and, I, and I remember I left the trip early and I was so embarrassed. 
I was the one who was embarrassed. So listeners, if you're thinking that um, I might come across sometimes as not being sympathetic, that's no, never my intention because trust me, I have been there. I know what it feels like to be on my own in Croatia being fat shamed by someone who's telling me to do exercise as I'm standing there in a dressing gown that doesn't fit me properly. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've highlighted it in our conversation. I'm not suggesting you talk to anyone other than the Be Helpline about this because because I know how rubbish people can be, sadly, around, you know, seeing things through their own lens that, and how delicate people can feel. So I think I think that's really important. We got that message across. Yeah. And it, and it doesn't have to be something that you share with a lot of people. Just if you need to no. start speaking to somebody at beat, start speaking to somebody at beat. You don't have to announce it. Absolutely. It's it's your journey. It's your personal journey. And it's going yeah. to be really special. Absolutely. Oh, Jess, thank you so much. I mean, obviously... We could talk, we could have had a hundred different conversations. We could have done. I'm loving it. Um, and it would be wonderful to get you back and maybe answer some listener questions and maybe talk as I know that you're constantly doing more research, trying to get more data, trying to bring more helpful resources to the conversation. So if we can bring you back as and when those developments are made and I would love and to. help as many people as possible, because like I said, if it's affecting this many people, and yet it seems yeah. to be hiding in plain sight, then yeah. we tackle it and just give people the resources they need. If it, if you're suffering Absolutely. in silence, which as you say, from what you're talking about with your clients and patients, it seems to be that a lot of people suffer in silence and in shame and in guilt. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I just want to thank you, Emma, for speaking out as well, because it makes our job so much better when we've got people who are willing to talk about it. It really does. So thank you for sharing your journey and being so honest today. Oh, thank you. Oh, uh, listeners, obviously the links to Jess, the Beat website, all of the resources will be in the show notes and they'll obviously be tagged on social media. But Jess, Jess Griffiths, sorry, I'm talking over Invisalign. Jess Griffiths, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a delight to chat to you. Absolute pleasure. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you found that conversation useful. All the links to everything we discussed are in the show notes. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. You can also slide into my DMs on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. I know a lot of you do that and it's always a tweet. Or if you want to speak to me and thousands of other listeners of this podcast, then please don't hesitate to click the link in the show notes to join the Facebook forum. There are thousands of us in there and we are talking about a whole array of things. And honestly, we would love for you to be a part of that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.